Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a Pledge Drive special edition of the program. My special guest for the hour is folklorist and USU Assistant Professor of English, Lynn McNeil. And uh, I've chosen uh, segments from three episodes of the program. I hope you'll enjoy these. This is an opportunity for us in these special Pledge Drive editions of the program to reach back uh, uh, to uh, some very memorable episodes. And uh, these three are... Uh, we're going to hear from Eric Newsom, who's former uh, Senior Vice President for Programming at NPR. Uh, he's now gone on to other things, but he's uh, author of Giving Up the Ghost. The subtitle is A Story About Friendship, 80s Rock, A Lost Scrap of Paper, and What It Means to Be Haunted. Fascinating story. We're going to hear an excerpt from that. We'll also hear part of my conversation with National Geographic photographer Paul Nicklin who grew up on Baffin Island in the Arctic Circle, became a photographer. You've probably seen his photography in National Geographic and other places. We're going to talk about global warming and rapid changes that he's uh, seeing in the Arctic. And uh, then we'll hear a uh, conversation from the year 2010. Lee Austin introduces us to the soundscape of Zion National Park. In that year of 2010, they were putting together the Zion National Park Soundscape Management Plan. We're going to hear some beautiful natural sound from Zion National Park. All of that is uh, coming, and I hope you'll stay with us and hope you'll pledge your support. If you haven't yet, if you have, a big thank you. If you have not, here's the way to do that. You can go to upr.org, upr.org, or you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So, Lynn McNeil, always a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you so much. I love being here. I love being here during the pledge drive. And we've talked to you about all manner of things, and uh, right now we're we're enlisting your support to encourage fellow listeners to to help. And I am so happy to encourage people to help. I'm one of those enormous public radio nerds. I think I sent out a really overly enthusiastic tweet about payroll deductions <laughs> earlier this week, and then you know reflecting back on that moment, thought, wow, I might I might need some help <laughs> if that's really what gets me excited, you know, to the level of tweeting is that I can do payroll deductions for my public radio pledges. But hey, there it is. I mean, this is this is one of the best ways that I have found to connect to the community, to the state, to the nation, all different levels of information and connection between people, between ideas, between stories. This is the place for it. What, uh, what kinds of programs uh, get you excited? Oh, my goodness. Well, I... I admit I love local stuff. I love local programming. I listen to Access Utah um, fairly often. But I also love the stuff that sort of digs into topics that would never occur to me to think about. The TED Radio Hours is one that I just find myself, you know, I'm standing there in my gym clothes holding my car keys, <laughs> waiting to go to the gym, and I'm just standing in the kitchen listening for an hour to the different people that they've brought together to talk about a subject that I wouldn't even have thought I would be interested in. And it ends up being fascinating and and that really i mean it's utah public radio is one stop shopping for what's happening in my community what's happening in my state what's happening in the country and then what's happening in some of the great minds that that are working today uh that's wonderful yeah ted's one of my uh, favorite programs as well and so uh, you can support all of that programming with a quick phone call, uh, and we hope you will, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. 
And uh, especially during Access Utah, I can't help, Lynn, but take it personally. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you should. Pledges that come uh, in now are for Tom. That's highs and lows. <laughs> so if, if nobody's calling, kind of take it personally, you get a little down. Um, and highs of people are, of are calling. We've had great response so far during the program, and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, give us your comments. Tell us where we could improve. Tell us some subjects that you'd like to see covered. Uh, this is a, a great time for feedback. Uh, 800-826-1495. So, uh, Lynn, I just want to, uh, before we go to uh, Eric Newsom giving up the ghost, um, we have a special incentive for this hour only. Um, it's a book by Patty Raymond. Patty Raymond is a pet psychic, an animal communicator. Her website is Patty Pet Psychic. We had her on the program just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, good response. People wanted to know how to better communicate with their with their animals. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? And uh, so she couldn't do psychic readings over the radio. She has to have a, a photograph uh, in front of her. Uh, but she has a lot of wisdom to impart about how you can better communicate and have a better relationship. She mm-hmm. says, uh, just like between t- two people, uh, between you and your animal, mm-hmm. um, communication is a key. Yeah, she the title I think says it all. Humans think, animals feel. I love this finding common ground between you and your animal companions. I know I would love to have someone have a go at my dog. Let yeah. me know if all the things I think are going on in his head actually are. Actually are, that's yeah. right. So, for a pledge of $65, you can have one of these books and and they're signed. She sent 3 books and she signed each of them. So this is Patty Raymond. Humans think animals feel how to better communicate with your uh, your animal, uh, finding common ground between you and your animal companions. Uh, we only have three, so now pledge now if you want one of these. Yep. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. So, let's, uh, Lynn, let's dive into this, and I'm sure... We'll have a good discussion about this. Oh, I'm sure. After we hear this, <laughs> I chose this in expectation that you were coming. Um, so let me just uh, let me just give you the the paragraph here, setting up the book. This is giving up the ghost by Eric Newsom. He's former vice president for programming at uh, National Public Radio. He's on to other things now. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing, um, but this is a wonderful, uh, interesting book, a, a great conversation. Uh, Eric Newsom, he says, is afraid of the supernatural, and for good reason. As a high school oddball in Canton, Ohio, during the early 1980s, he became convinced he was being haunted by the ghost of a little girl in a blue dress who lived in his parents' attic. It began as a weird premonition during his dreams, something that his quickly diminishing circle of friends chalked up as a way to get attention. It ended with Eric in a mental ward, having apparently destroyed his life before it truly began. The only thing that kept him from the brink, his friendship with a girl named Lara, a classmate who was equal parts devoted friend and enigmatic crush. With the kind of strange connection you can only forge when you're young, Lara walked Eric back to normal, only to become a ghost herself in a tragic twist of fate. So that's the setup for the book. In this part of the conversation, near the end of our conversation, uh, we got to talking about how Eric Newsom is afraid of ghosts and how he's trying to overcome that fear and trying to find out about the supernatural by confronting it. And so let's hear this. This is my, from my conversation uh, from, uh, what year is this? This is from 2013 with Eric Newsom. 
And you're able at that point to, I guess, confess to your friends or to ask them. Because you you normally don't bring this up, right? Yeah. One of the things you, you found is that people find you're afraid of ghosts. They outcome the ghost stories. Yeah, they start telling ghost stories. It's just the most ridiculous thing. And people still do it. I, I'll, there's a line of people asking me to sign their books uh, when I go to book readings, and every one of them is throwing out ghost stories. I'm like, you realize that this is just not, you know, if someone is scared of heights, you don't talk about being on tall buildings. If someone is scared, if someone is an alcoholic, you don't sit there and talk about how great that vodka tastes or something. It's just ridiculous. But people do it all the time. And um, uh, so I just basically don't tell people. But um, that night, for some reason... Um, you know, David and Gina are very good friends of mine, and um, they asked about why I was scared of ghosts or why I shuddered when someone was talking about the summer bedroom, and I told them I'm scared of ghosts, and they started asking why, and probably for the first time I started to really outline what became this book of just the whole connection between everything, and I don't think I realized it until I started telling the story um, to them how all this kind of comes together between Laura and the little girl and my life and the things that happened to me during that time and then how much I've carried that with me. I wonder if you could tell me about uh, one of the, you know, the places you went to. This, this, this is a very brave thing. I, I you know, put myself in your place. I don't know if I'd have the guts to do it. One one trip especially had the hairs on the back of my neck standing up, and that's your visit to this uh, former correctional facility, this prison, yeah. which seems... <laughs> and, and people actually give tours of it on a certain nights of the year. You go in before nightfall and... And uh, I, I'm I'm getting chills right now thinking about this. Maybe you can tell us about this or or another one of the places you visited. Oh, uh, well, the Mansfield Reformatory that you're talking about. Many people know that because um, the movie. Um, oh, uh, um, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Thank you for helping me remember that. Shawshank Redemption was filmed there. All the exteriors were filmed there. Some of the interiors, and they still have some of the set pieces in there. So you'll be sitting, and 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 so this place is was a functioning prison from the late 1800s till I believe the 1970s. And then they started to put it out of commission. So the place now is this, they put a roof on it so it's, you know, it's not leaking or anything, but it's just this, this mess of many, many, like the cell blocks are six stories high of this twisted, corroding metal, lead paint peeling off of everything, the walls, the ceilings, Broken plumbing, uh, uh, you know, doors off of hinges. Just it just looks like this abandoned old prison, right? This absolutely run down, decrepit place, dangerous place. And they take people on tours through it. Um, mm. They do it during the day. Uh, they take people during tours during parts of it. Um, but a couple times a year, they will put people inside at night, lock it down. The doors open from the inside out. So if you're inside, you can get out. But they don't open from the outside. And the rule is you can stay in until you walk outside. And then once you walk outside, you're done. And they start uh, uh, about a half hour before sundown. They give you a tour of the, so you can understand the lay of the place. It's, it's, it's huge. It's just a, a shockingly large place. And um, two main wings in the center area. Uh, where the warden lived and the staff worked and everything like that. Then they cut the power so that it's completely dark. And you watch the sunset through these massive windows, and then you're in there for the night. And um, uh, uh, two or three dozen people do this at a time. 
by about eleven thirty or twelve, um, we we had all agreed to meet back um, to have something to eat. And after that, most of the people left. Mm. And so then the rest of the night, it's just you exploring with these groups of people. And the thing about most people don't know when they watch ghost hunting shows on TV is they see it looks seems very thrilling and exciting. But it takes hours and hours and hours and hours. You're sitting around in the dark, bored and scared at the same time, just not quite sure what's happening. And so, you know, here we were in this very scary place, pitch black, with headlamps on. Um, and the people who were left were all huge. Uh, people who were left were all people who had been in there a couple times before, had experiences. So they're telling you their stories and showing you places where they saw things. And people get really, they just basically freak each other out. Mm-hmm. And so you spend the night doing that, and it gets really just, oh, I'd never do it again. Yeah. Did, did you see or feel anything? No, not there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There were a couple times I had experiences I couldn't explain, but oftentimes when... People said they were having experiences. There were several times I went to a, a town called Lilydale, which is uh, entirely um, occupied by spiritualists. So we follow a religion that believes that spirits and ghosts kind of communicate with you to tell you messages from God. Um, that uh, I was there, and I would be sitting next to someone who was having a very profound experience, being able to see something in front of them, see some spirit in front of them, uh, to be able to feel things, people touching them. And I would be sitting next to them, and nothing was happening to me. Outside of being a little freaked out because they were so upset, but nothing, I would experience nothing. Hmm. Uh, I wonder, just we have just a couple minutes left, Uh, you mentioned the questions. You you went with questions, you came out uh, not having questions answered, but that's okay. I, I wonder... What are some of those questions? Well, I'm, I basically, my foolish pursuit, I went into this thinking, you know, I'm a journalist, and I'm, you know, I have a pretty high threshold for being a, a skeptic and needing things to be proven. So I'm going to go into all these scary places, and I'm going to find out whether or not ghosts are real. Yes or no. Box checked or not checked. I either experienced it or I didn't, and there's no, there could be no, there could be a high, high threshold for truth. And I also felt that if I, you know, I had suppressed equally with my own history, I felt I had suppressed so much of this stuff that if I, you know, if I just spent some time with it and I just did the scary things of talking to people who really didn't have any interest in speaking to me for the last 25 years or kind of confronted some of this, that I would find every answer I needed. So I would end up walking away from this process knowing whether or not what I experienced as a teenager actually could have happened or not, and be understanding all the people in my life and my own actions and what it really meant and, and, and so on and so forth. And I walked away with probably more questions than I started, but probably a sense of peace around both issues that I never really had before. Hmm. And where does all this experience, writing the book and everything, leave you with regard to, to Laura? Huh. That's interesting. Um, I don't know. You know, I... It's um, it's if you had told two kids cruising the back roads of Canton, Ohio, with nothing to do, no money, no real idea of what was going on in their lives, that 25 years from now, someone will be sitting in Utah listening on a radio to someone in Washington D.C. talk about the experiences that were happening in those people. It's just the oddest thing in the world to me. Uh, is that that's the most surreal and unexpected part of this whole thing is that that 
could ever happen. Mm. And so I think I'm, I'm one part of me is I, I, I don't think my, this has changed my opinion of her at all, but it's kind of changed her role in the world and exposed people to her. And I think the most gratifying thing of the whole thing is, is that people, they read this, the small tidbits of this person they see in a book and they start to understand who she is and start to see her and really find her an intriguing and interesting person and character. And I guess I just feel some satisfaction as the world gets to know her too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in talking to her family and friends, they feel the same way. It's like you know, everybody understands why we felt she was special. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you've, you've done for her. Ah, yeah, I don't, you know, it's debatable whether she would want me to do it or not, right. but it's happened. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, from my conversation with Eric Newsom from uh, 2013. Very interesting book, interesting conversation. We have uh, Lynn McNeil, a folklorist and USU assistant professor of English uh, at Utah State University with us. Um, and we're in the pledge drive. Uh, so the number 800-826-1495 to support great programs like this, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Uh, so as you heard there in the conversation, Lynn McNeil, I would never, ever, ever in a million years <laughs> do, do do what he did. It, you know, his experience, I love, obviously, I'm a folklorist. I love hearing stories like that because it, it highlights it highlights the complexity and the nuance of the way that we interact with the supernatural. You know, he says he wanted to go in with sort of this black and white question of yes or no. Are ghosts real or are they not? And what he gets is this much more complicated experience. He describes perfectly what folklorists call an instance of legend tripping, where people go to a place where, you know, legends are told about, certain things are purported to happen, and check it out for themselves. And you've got that personal experience. He describes being bored and scared at the same time. But then you've got this communal shaping of experience as people tell stories, well, last time I was here, this happened, or I heard that this happened. And then as as new ambiguous experiences take place, you see people shaping them out of the stories that they just heard. Well, maybe that was the same thing that you saw the last time you were here. And, and there are no black and whites in things like that. And I think that's wonderful. I don't I don't think there should be. I think that Often what drives people to explore the supernatural is the exact same thing that drives them to explore the natural world, curiosity. But there's this sense that all bets are off because we're dealing with something that is definitively outside of the natural world, supernatural. You don't know what might happen. And I think there's something that's frightening and also exciting for a lot of people in that. Yeah. Uh, he also, this phenomenon, he announces, I'm afraid of ghosts, and out come the ghost stories, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's like, that's a human nature, it's right? A human, you know, human thing, someone yeah. finds mm-hmm. out their friend is pregnant, and all the horror stories of pregnancy right. come right. out. And it's like, what are you doing to this poor right. person? Right. But, you know, that's, yeah. there it is. Yeah. It's very interesting, a lot of complexities, as you say, uh, in this story. Uh, because Eric Newsom, uh, he feels like he's being haunted by the the, uh, the ghost of a little girl in a blue dress mm-hmm. up in the upper room in his house, um, and so he, he you know he tries to investigate this. He has he's had he had troubled youth. A mm-hmm. lot of things happen, and he's haunted in a different way by his friend Laura. Yeah, and that's a I think that's one of the appealing things about the supernatural, about ghost stories, is that the line between a literal approach and a metaphorical pr- approach is really blurry. It it sort of works on both levels at the same time. I mean, who is to say 
that there is, on the experiential level, a major difference between being literally haunted by a ghost and being sort of metaphorically haunted by a person whose whose memory, whose life, whose time spent with you simply won't leave you alone. Yeah. And I think that that we can process both of those things in in very similar ways. The that act of of exorcism or you know, more gently putting someone to rest, I think, is a process that's important whether you believe in literal yeah. haunting or not. Yeah. By the way, would would you go to that facility and get locked in and uh <laughs> Probably yes. Uh-huh. If yeah. I had a group with me, yeah, I don't know yeah. why that would help all horror right. movies start with a group and then <laughs> everyone right. just gets Everybody picked off picked one, off by, one, one. by one. That's right. You know, yeah. I could only hope to be the last person standing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I am. I am definitely one of those people. I'm generally chicken. I tell my students all the time, um, but largely because I want to remain open to possibilities. I think that one of the defenses people have when they go into these situations is the defense of the skeptic, you know, oh, this isn't real. This is all just ridiculous. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you're not going to scream and run when there's an unexplained noise that happens. But I, I try hard as a folklorist not to not to assume that I know what's going to happen. And then it's really hard not yeah, to let right. all, you know, if you have a good imagination, you're sort of doomed in these situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Uh, the the USU Folklore Club, I think, does go to the Statue of the oh, Weeping Woman absolutely. in the Logan Cemetery. What, Halloween? Yes, on Halloween night. Uh, for the past, man, I want to say five years now, the USU Folklore Club has gone there and tried out that particular legend trip that we have here. We just recently, um, the Folklore Club took a group of visiting graduate students on a legend tour around town. They went to the Lyric Theater. They went to uh, the Weeping Woman. They even got to visit the nunnery, St. Anne's, up Logan Canyon. And, you know, you get you get a better sense of place when you know a place's local legends. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really a genius move to bring visiting students to these sites because you get a sense of connection that you don't get just by, you know, getting a tour of a building or being assigned an A number or something like that. It's a it's a deeper level of a sense of place. Hmm. We're going to continue that. That's a nice segue. We'll have a talk about sense of place in the upcoming segments. Uh, by the way, we upcoming, we're going to be talking with Paul Nicklin. Uh, National Geographic photographer. He grew up on Baffin Island. Mm. Fascinating. We talk a little bit about that, and then we talk about global warming and and how it's affecting the Arctic. And we'll uh, go to Zion National Park. Lee Austin takes us there, and we'll hear some natural sound from the park. Uh, That's coming up after a break. um, Before we go to break, I just want to uh, reemphasize that we have a very special incentive. I believe one of these books is already gone. Oh, uh uh-oh. We'll have to... Two remaining. So two remaining, only two remaining. And uh, Lynn, what what is the book? The book is Humans Think Animals Feel by Patty Raymond, who is a well-known pet psychic. And she is talking here about how to communicate, better communication with your animal companion, That'll improve your relationship with your animal companion. You know, I think that's a nice example, too, of what we were just talking about. I don't think you have to believe in in pet psychics in order to benefit from something like this. There's sort of the there's the, the literal level of understanding, and then there's yeah. maybe the more metaphorical level of understanding where you can say this is clearly someone. If you read the reviews of her books, she has had success. You want a better connection with your pets or the animals in your life, this is probably a good bet. So uh, if you can come in at the $65 level or more, 
you can have one of these books while they last. That's mm-hmm. the key. So there are only two left, I believe. Uh, we'll, we'll check during the break. Uh, but I believe one is gone. Uh, two left. Uh, 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. If uh, you're listening in the evening... If it's 7.30 instead of mm-hmm. 9.30, um, then uh, then go to the website, upr.org. Mm-hmm. We'd still love to have your, your pledge. More following this break. Coming soon to Utah Public Radio. Kings Road, Where Do We Go From Here? A five-part radio series exploring the ongoing civil rights movement through a contemporary study of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy 50 years after his assassination. A team from Utah State University will travel to the American South focusing on how the lessons of the 1950s and 60s apply to civil rights struggles in the United States today. We want to go down as, as journalists, as students, as teachers, to really uncover the stories that tie yesterday to today. I think with the 50-year anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, I think the world will be watching. King's Road, Where Do We Go From Here? is an original series that can only be heard on Utah Public Radio. Listen for new episodes throughout the month of April. For more details on the series, go to upr.org or subscribe to the series from wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a special pledge drive edition of the program. What that means is we have reached back in the archives. We've pulled out um, what we hope are good examples of the kind of programming that we do. And uh, we're presenting uh, these uh, some of our best uh, excerpts from our best episodes. And we're talking with uh, USU Assistant Professor of English uh, Lynn McNeil, who's a folklorist. And uh, we're hoping to talk to you as well mm-hmm. with your pledge of support today. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 to pledge your support in whatever amount to Utah Public Radio and support Access Utah and mm-hmm. all the other great programs, upr.org. Um, I had a question as to where Eric Newsom is now, what he's up to. He's former vice president of programming at, Utah, uh, at uh, National Public Radio. Now he's with, and I remember this now, he's with audible.com. He's senior mm-hmm. vice president of original content at audible.com. And you can uh, find out about him at ericnewsom.com. Uh, uh, found out during the break here, uh, Lynn McNeil, we only have one only book left. Only one. Now is the time. Where else can you spend $65, get a signed copy of this book, and support programming that is going to cover topics like ghosts and pet psychics and the Arctic Circle and global warming and Zion soundscapes. That's, I mean, that's right. This, this, I feel like this show today is an encapsulation of the range of information that you can get from public radio. And the chance to support that is incredibly valuable. And to support Tom's continuing education. I had Lee Austin, <laughs> my colleague, on uh, on Thursday. And yep. we, we had a great time um, reminiscing and looking toward the future. And uh, Lee, Lee said, you know, when he was on doing this program, it didn't feel like work. It just felt like going back to college. You're really lucky. with. I mean, you get people who are experts on such a wide variety of topics coming in, filling you in, giving you not even an impersonal lecture or reading, but a one-on-one conversation yeah. about this stuff. That's an incredible experience. And then you share it with all of us. That's right. We, we get to sit at home and have breakfast and, you know, drink our coffee and, and learn from that person, too. 
And uh, so I'm a member of Utah Public Radio. I, I at least try to pay in, in part for my continuing education. <laughs> won't you? Won't you pay in part for your continuing education here? And and just uh, sheer joy of learning new things and going Indeed. to places uh, through the radio. Uh, so this, uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with Patty Raymond, uh, and we had a great response. A lot of people called in with uh, trying to trying to improve their communication with their pets. Um, they're animal companions. I think mm-hmm. we're, we're transitioning from the word pet to animal. And we even talked True. about this with Patty Raymond. Uh, she said pet implies, um, you know, ownership and mm-hmm. uh, kind of, um, you know, it is kind of a, uh, diminishes mm-hmm. uh, what an animal is, what yep. an animal companion is. Yep. Uh, so our animal companions. One book left. If you're interested in Humans Think, Animals Feel by Pet Psychic Patty Raymond, uh, she talks about how to improve your communication, your relationship with your animal companion. $65, your pledge to Utah Public Radio will get you this signed. It's an autographed copy of the book, Humans Think, Animals Feel by Patty Raymond. Just call 800-826-1495 or upr.org. So before we go to the next uh, segment, uh, Lynn McNeil, you're a, you're a listener, you're a member. Yep. I've Why been. should people join you? Man, people should join me because here's the thing. If you're listening, and I feel like this is triply true if you're listening during the pledge drive, you already are a member of this community. Now it's time to do your part. This is This is really a central source of information here in the state of Utah. You can go to any of the corners of the state and Utah Public Radio is there and is broadcasting relevant, important, relatable information. And you have a voice in that. I think that's the thing that that is the most significant to me about public radio. The first time that I emailed or called or tweeted, I think I was a member before Twitter, so I guess it wasn't a tweet, whatever that first outreach was. But the first time that I reached out with my question or my thought, and that was incorporated in to the broadcast was just a revelation, this sense of, okay, this isn't me being a passive listener. This is me being an active community member in this public radio station. And the opportunity to do that, to have my questions answered by famous experts in in their fields is just invaluable, and that is worth a lot. Uh, that is worth many, many pledges over many, many years to have that experience. Well, thank you for your pledges. Thank you for your membership. Thank you for contributing to uh, uh, your content. You, 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 <laughs> some, You're somewhat frequent guest to Access Utah. <laughs> Lynn McDill is doing her part. Uh, won't you uh, uh, do yours as well? And if you already have, many have, thank you yes, so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. If you haven't, now is the perfect time to call. Uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. Just one, I believe, unless it's gone the time we've been talking, one of these books left, $65 for Humans Think Animals Field by Patty Raymond. Well, Lynn McNeil, our next segment, um, I reached back in the archives to 2010. This is Lee Austin. He was doing a series of programs in the national parks. I think this was part of that series. In any case, he traveled to Zion National Park. And they were putting together in that year their soundscape management plan. And so here's a portion of that program on Access Utah, uh, Lee Austin. Asked what makes Zion National Park such a compelling place to visit, most will talk about the stunning red rock landscape, the scenic Virgin River, the Zion Narrows, in short, the visual landscape. And the National Park Service is charged with protecting that landscape for future generations. 
There is another park resource that is being studied and will be the focus of a new management plan. Here is a sample. Throughout Zion National Park, remote recording gear has been set up to map the acoustic profile of the landscape. Zion will be the first national park to develop a soundscape management plan. Here is more of the natural sound that has been recorded in Zion. I spoke recently with five people who are working on the Zion Soundscape Project, the focus of this edition of Access Utah. In a minute, Frank Torina with the National Park Service in Fort Collins, Colorado. But first, Michael Walsh, an acoustic technician for Zion National Park, shows me one of the remote sound monitoring stations he uses to measure acoustics. We're at the Temple of Sinawava. We are maybe about 300 feet away from the river, up on a hillside just below about some thousand foot cliffs coming down. Right here is where the narrows begin on the Virgin River and it's you know, a narrow canyon for about 18 miles. We have um, two tripods with uh, microphone and anemometer as you were saying. The anemometer will measure wind speed and gust speed. We have a sound pressure level meter which m measures the sound pressure levels of the decibels and the frequencies of, of the sounds and then we have a simple um, mp3 recorder that records it all. This is kind of a like an amphitheater. The, the rocks, cliffs kind of surround the site. Right. That is going to have an effect on the sound up here as well. Yeah I think it'll it'll amplify a lot of sounds. Um, it seems whenever a, a high-flying jet flies, flies over the the area it really amplifies the sound because it all you know travels down the cliffs and and just makes it sound like a lot louder than it probably is. Not a lot of unnatural sound right here, at no. right at the moment. No, at the moment this it sounds really good. It sounds exactly how it sh how it should sound. You know, we got a little bit of traffic and that's about it for non-natural noises. Frank Torina is a natural resources planner for the National Park Service in Fort Collins, Colorado, and specializes in acoustics. When we use the term soundscape, we're basically talking about all of the acoustic energy in an area. So all the things you can hear and also things that you can't hear. It's some acoustic energy that are in higher frequencies or lower frequencies that humans can't perceive. Other animals can, um, and all, those, all that sound energy makes up the soundscape. We sometimes uh, make a distinction between the soundscape and the acoustic environment, um, whereas the soundscape is actually the, the component um, or, or, or the sort of the, the human element of the acoustic environment. 
So it's how people perceive, you know, the the actual sound levels and sound frequencies and sound energy that that's contained in a, in a in an area. Some of that is comprised of natural sound, and some of it is comprised by things that we're contributing. Exactly, and so the the term soundscape would encompass all of that. Why is this an important thing to consider as a resource, and that uh, we we need to develop a, a plan for? Research has shown that natural sounds have an important effect on on visitors to our national parks, um, as do the noises that can intrude on their experiences. Um, and the acoustical environment is also an important part of a healthy ecosystem. So American people have told us in, in a number of surveys that natural sounds and a sense of peace and quiet are important to them. Um, in one study, uh, 95% of Americans said that the opportunity to experience natural peace and the sounds of nature was an important reason for preserving national parks. In another, uh, there was 91% of park visitors uh, identified the enjoyment of natural quiet and the sounds of nature as, as important reasons for having national parks. So something that the, the, our visitors and the American people have told us again and again is, is an important part of their experience. You know, n natural sounds like, um, like flowing water, like bird songs, those tend to have sort of a calming effect on people, and they can have been shown to reduce stress levels. They can lower blood pressure. They can lower your heart rate. You know, I think there's a reason why those alarm clocks and CDs that feature natural sounds are becoming so popular. You know, with respect to noise, um, you know, noise in parks can interfere with speech and interpretive programs. Noise can uh, cause your heart rate and blood pressure to increase. Uh, they also it also causes sort of some um, psychological and social effects. Uh, noise can cause people to become um, annoyed and irritable. And there's another important effect of noise, uh, especially for park soundscapes, and that is that it can actually diminish uh, the our appreciation of the scenic beauty of a park. Now we've we've compiled a, uh, a number of uh, almost almost a hundred different articles related to the effects of noise on park visitors. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about the wildlife, the effects on wildlife too, because that's another important uh, reason to protect the, the acoustic environment and the soundscapes of the parks. As I mentioned, the acoustic environment is, is vital to the healthy functioning of ecosystems. Uh, hearing allows animals to experience their world in a way that, that sight alone doesn't provide. And I think it's kind of interesting to note that, that hearing is so important to survival that that there are no deaf vertebrate species that we know of, and um, and most invertebrate species can also experience uh, and and detect sounds as well. So it's a very important part of of, uh, of survival for for humans and animals. Yeah, a, a distracting background noise could interfere with the predator's attempt to find prey. Exactly, exactly. So noise can can mask certain sounds, uh, just like smog can limit our our visible horizon. You know, noise can visit can limit our audible horizon. Uh, for example, imagine an owl sitting in a tree, listening for the the footfall of a mouse. Uh, so the area in which the owl can hear a mouse scurrying through the grass is what we refer to as the owl's listening area. Um, if a noise source raises the, the background sound level by as little as three decibels, which really isn't that much, the owl's listening area is reduced by 50%. So that makes it that much harder for the owl to, find, for the owl to uh, find its dinner. And that loss of listening area is also, true for, also holds true for humans.
Love that natural sound. And uh, that's Lee Austin at Zion National Park in the year 2010, and including some great natural uh, sound there. So that's an example of some of the things we do. Often it's uh, interviews, phone interviews, in-studio interviews. Sometimes we do go out on location. And uh, just a great program from 2010 with Lee Austin there. It is so true that that is a calming experience. The minute that the first nature sounds came on that clip, I could feel my shoulders dropped about an inch. I would never have said I was tense, but man, it's just the, the relaxation that hits from... From hearing those sounds, definitely made me want to go visit Zion or one of the other national parks that we've got here in Utah. Yeah, certainly. Um, and we do a lot of public lands programming, uh, <clears throat> programming about public lands mm-hmm. and uh, those issues here. We do try to keep it statewide and, uh, and, a, and a, include uh, rural issues as well. Uh, if this is programming that you support, we hope that you, you'll take advantage of the time right now to... Uh, a couple of minutes and uh, pledge your support 800-826-1495 800-826-1495 or upr.org uh, i guess i should reintroduce you lynn for people who don't know who, who you know it's tom and who is that uh, probably not many don't know you but lynn mcneil is a folklorist and the usu assistant professor of english at utah state university and a big fan of utah public radio thank you for that um, we have, I believe, one book left. Uh, we have a special incentive, this program only, um, and uh, time is dwindling. You only have about 10 minutes left here. Um, one book left. If you can come in at the $65 level or more, we would love to send out to you an autographed copy of Humans Think, Animals Feel by Patty Raymond. Uh, it'll help you communicate with your pet, help you to improve your relationship with your animal companion. Uh, a couple of, I pulled up the uh, table of contents here, Lynn. Awareness and focus, that's chapter two. Physical awareness, mental awareness, emotional awareness, thinking about emotion. That's what Patty Raymond talks about uh, a lot. It's being aware of your animal companion. Cool. And um, and that can go a long way. And then, uh, let's see, chapter four, changing behavior. The two subtitles, approval and disapproval. And what animals want. That's, that, that'd be valuable. And then some practical examples. Separation anxiety. Stopping barking. Ignoring uh, cats. Moving and missing animals. Uh, and then she has a, a chapter on food and exercise. Uh, all of that there for this, uh, this uh, book. Animal, humans think animals feel. Finding common ground between you and your animal companions for $65. That money comes to UPR. And the book can be yours. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. If you're listening in the evening, uh, better to uh, email us or to go to online and place there, upr.org. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have a conversation with National Geographic photographer Paul Nicklin. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement, celebrating international culture and cuisine at the International Banquet, Saturday, March 31st, 7 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center Ballroom. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. Debauchery in the saloons was one of the reasons for the coming of the Prohibition era. If you've ever been around a really sleazy dive and you see drunks kind of staggering out into the street, you kind of captured what concerned people. They were largely unregulated, completely out of control. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.
You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, I have with me for the hour uh, folklorist and uh, USU assistant professor of English, um, Lynn McNeil, who uh, you recognize her voice as a uh, somewhat frequent guest on this program, and do we have her in on the fun drive because she's passionate about public radio and very articulate about why you, sh- you should join her. Uh, so with that set up, uh, Lynn McNeil. <laughs> now I'm on the spot to be articulate. Uh-oh. <laughs> would, you, would you give another appeal to why people should join you in supporting UPR? Absolutely. I think that Utah Public Radio is one of the best opportunities that we have to support people who make a difference and to make a difference ourselves in, in our community. And it really, I mean, it, it, it's really the breadth of Utah Public Radio, I think, that, that strikes me where we can be having a conversation about something incredibly specific to, you know, my hometown or to another individual's hometown and then talking as we just did about the national park system where we are so lucky in Utah to have so many national parks all the way up to global news to, you know, major occurrences in the world. It's really the the source for all of that sort of information. I think that that's, that's the the beauty of public radio it's a it's a national resource embedded in a local community and as a member of that local community as a utahn as a proud utahn i think that supporting that resource and making sure that the programming keeps coming and that the lights stay on and all of that is one of the best ways that we can contribute to our community and the the best way to do that is uh, to call the number 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org, upr.org. One book left for a pledge of $65 or more. We'd love to send out to you Humans Think, Animals Feel. Uh, this is by uh, pa- uh, Patty Raymond, and it'll help you to communicate with your animal companion, improve your relationship with your animal companion. One book left for a pledge of $65. The money comes to us, and this autographed copy of Humans Think Animals Feel by Patty Raymond comes to you. Uh, so, uh, Lynn McNeil, let's go to our next uh, segment. This is uh, from uh, my conversation. Uh, let's see, what year was this? From 2011. had a chance to talk with the Canadian uh, photographer, filmmaker, marine biologist, uh, Paul Nicklin. You see his photographs uh, quite often in the National Geographic. And we got talking about his background and about uh, global warming. Uh, prepared about a nine-minute segment, so we'll probably have to artistically fade out of this at the end. Uh-oh. Time. But we you'll, talked you'll, too much. You, which is which is great. <laughs> um, we you'll get the gist here, though. Um, my conversation with Paul Nicklin. Thanks for staying with us through the break, and we're going to be talking this part of the program with photographer Paul Nicklin, who uh, has published several articles and, of course, many photographs in the National Geographic magazine. Paul Nicklin grew up in uh, the far north part of Canada on Baffin Island in the Arctic Circle and was fascinated by the wildlife there. He uh, went on to get a, a degree in wildlife biology, but uh, decided to uh, go into photography, and he's had some wonderful adventures, and you can see his uh, stunning photographs at paulnicklin.com, and we'll get him to tell us some of his adventures, including a ride on the back of a bowhead whale and uh, a uh, days-long interaction with potentially dangerous leopard seal. Paul Nicklin, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. 
appreciate you taking the time to be with us. The latest book is uh, Polar Obsession, um, and uh, one of the uh, your stated goals in your photography is to preserve these uh, fragile ecosystems. Talk about the Arctic and Antarctic, and uh, maybe a good place to start uh, is your childhood. You grew up in, in Baffin Island. This is, uh, I guess, near or in the Arctic Circle. That's correct. It's just below the Arctic Circle, but if you get on a a big airline jet out of Montreal, and you fly for three hours straight north. You'll land on a, uh, a large island, a windswept, no-treed island, and we lived in a community uh, with 140 or 150 Inuit people called Kimarut, and uh, we were one of the few non-Inuit families living on that island, so we had direct immersion into the Arctic and its culture, so it was a great way to get my feet on the ground in the north. What, what was your family doing up there? Uh, my mom was a school teacher, but mainly we went because my dad was a, uh, a heavy-duty mechanic, and he was there to keep the local heavy equipment running and the generators to keep the town running and and uh, various jobs like that. So no television, no radio, no computer games. Yeah, that was the beauty of it was yeah. you know to have no television, no no radio, no distractions. Obviously, no computers back then, and so all of our entertainment, all of our fun, all of our playtime was spent outside in the snow, in the ice, connecting with the environment. And at the time. We were just having fun, but I did not realize that every second we were out there playing, we were actually learning essential survival skills to surviving in, in that type of environment. Learning from the, uh, the Inuit as well, I guess. Uh, everything the, from uh, wildlife behavior to, to survival skills. Yeah, the Inuit are amazing teachers, and they actually don't teach like we do. We don't, they don't sit there and lecture someone on what to do. They, they'll put you in situations, and you know, they'll put you on thin ice, and you'll fall through the ice and into the water and... and experience you know in the, after that lesson you learn that you never do that again and and they had great stories like of the sea monsters Kadlupilu, the, uh, she was a monster that had a big hood on her uh, parka with a hood on it and if you got too close to the ice she would come up and take you down and drown you and eat you and that was just to tell us kids to stay away from you know the the dangerous ice and but they also taught you how to read the weather and and, and survive storms and build snow shelters from right from the time you're five years old so hmm. it's, uh, it was great training you write on your website that uh, you didn't know it at the time, but the seed was being planted uh, to become a nature photographer later. Oh, definitely. And I always had a strong visual appreciation for the, the polar regions for, you know, the, the beautiful subtle lights, the tones off the, the sea ice. And, and you know, I, I just, my, my mother was a photographer as well when I grew up there. So it was, uh, she was always, you know, watching the magic unfold in the dark room uh, in this tiny island. Uh, and seeing the beauty that she was making was really inspirational for me as a kid as well. The, the, the tremendous opportunity. I don't know if you saw it that way as a kid, but uh, you know, most of us won't ever even get to go to Baffin Island, and, and you grew up there. Um, I, you write that uh, you you went on to study marine biology, University of Victoria, but uh, and you did work in the field for a while, but uh, decided to, to get into photography. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, the University of Victoria was great. Uh, and I got my degree, went back up there, got a really good job as a biologist. I was living my dream. I was, you know, out, out tagging polar bears on the sea ice and, you know, gone for six months and seeing incredible things. And But I felt extremely helpless. At the, at the end of a, say, three-month expedition of seeing 100 polar bears and tagging them and collaring them, measuring them and weighing them and pulling a tooth and finding out how old they were, at the end of the day, I realized all we had was a data set, you know, a whack of papers, that was mostly used for internal use, and then with government, there's internal fighting and fighting and people not sharing their data. And it just left me feeling really helpless. You saw the change that was going on. The Inuit were already starting to talk about the change that was going on in the Arctic, the effects on polar bear populations and whatnot. And I thought, you know, what better can I reach the masses of people? And I thought, if I could become a photojournalist, 
and bridge the gap between the good science that the scientists are doing and the general public. But in a magazine like National Geographic magazine, here now you have the chance to tell your story and reach 40 million people with one article. Hmm. There's a lot of work to do uh, to, uh, to, to bridge that gap. Uh, this subject has been uh, extremely politicized, at least in the United States. Uh, tell us your experiences. You have seen significant changes at the, at the polar regions? Oh, I've definitely seen significant changes, and I'm the same way as everybody else. I mean, and that's the problem right now with, with why no change is really happening or people aren't really acting on it is that we know we, we've become inundated with this, this debate in the newspaper. And for myself, while people are debating in the newspaper, I'm up there. So uh, there's uh, more from that conversation, um, uh, but uh, the gist of it is, uh, he says, he, this is from 2011, so it's, you know, a good uh, seven years ago, he says that at that point he was seeing rapid changes, uh, warming uh, there with the big effects on the ecosystem there in the Arctic uh, regions, and so he, he really wants to get the word out. And you see his work quite often in National Geographic, and you go to his website, uh, paulnicklin.com. So that conversation, just one example of the conversations you get here at uh, Utah Public Radio. We only have about uh, 30 seconds. Uh, Lynn McNeil, why should people give your 20-second version? I think that this hour that we've just had highlights it. We've gone from soundscapes to landscapes to hauntings, both literal and metaphorical, and just that range of topics and informations and hearing personally from the people involved is an incredibly valuable experience to me and something I'm definitely willing to put my money and resources towards, and I think everyone should as well. 800-826-1495, place to go to give, 800-826-1495, or online to upr.org. I believe we still have one book left, $65 level, Humans Think, Animals Feel by Patty Raymond. Lynn, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.